Hello, it's Andrew Pearce. It's Friday, December the 31st. It's New Year's Eve. Welcome to the show. We've given you a selection of some of the best political stories from the last 12 months. And my word, what a big year it's been on the political front. The EU has threatened to impose strict controls on the export of coronavirus vaccines made within the bloc to what are called third countries. In other words, Great Britain. Conservative MPs have warned that the move will poison relations between the EU and Britain for a generation if it follows through on threats which could block the Pfizer vaccine made in Belgium from coming to the United Kingdom, even though the government has signed a major legally binding contract with Pfizer. Joining me to discuss this is Sir Ian Duncan-Smith, the Conservative MP and former leader of the Conservative Party. Sir Ian, you and I have talked about the EU many times. This strikes me as the EU floundering because their own procurement policy for the vaccine is in big trouble and they're lashing out. Yes, I think you may be right, Andrew. Um, I think, number one, uh, I'm not sure this is lawful uh, and I'd be a real test for the European Court of Justice if this is referred to them by the companies as to whether or not this is really lawful. This is a commercial contract, number one. Second thing is that it, I think, if anything, it demonstrates one of the big reasons why uh, the UK voted to leave is because this kind of arbitrary process done on no other basis other than selfishness um, is kind of how the uh, EU works. Contrast this with the UK's position on vaccines, particularly on the AstraZeneca Oxford one, where we have been offering this to the whole third world. We have generously said we will work to make sure this is available as soon as possible to the third world once it's in full production uh, and to find ways to license it, etc. Uh, compare that to the EU, which says, no, we don't want to send it to you. Uh, you've left the EU and we're going to hold on to this because we're in a mess and we're going to blame everybody else for the mess that we're in. This is mean-spirited, selfish, self-centered, and I think utterly, utterly arrogant for them to think that they are standalone superior to everybody else. What a shocker. They're also arguing, aren't they, that they say AstraZeneca are not, are not going to carry out uh, or deliver as many uh, doses of the vaccine as they'd anticipated. But I, the, the argument about that seems to be rather academic, in bearing in mind the EU regulator has still not approved the AstraZeneca vaccine for use. And it's been going into people's arms in this country now for weeks. And we've given out now more than six million vaccines. Agreed. And this is the other bizarre thing, that their process is so bureaucratic that they can't accelerate it. Now, here's the difference. Our system uh, is such that they've been able to speed it up, not by skipping bits, but by running them in what they call parallel. So all the various tests that have taken place, they normally would wait till one is complete before starting the next part. Instead of which they've done them all in parallel, which means they all reach a climax. Uh, at the same time, and thus they were able in the uh, authority here in the UK to give it approval. In Europe, they've done nothing to speed up their processes, and that shows you how hidebound and bureaucratic they are. But, you know, at the end of it all, we are friends and allies, uh, and we've made this statement already, the government, Boris Johnson, about the third world, how we owe an obligation to help them as well. Um, but you don't get any of that from the European Union. What you get is a rather grasping process that wants to blame everybody else for having failed to get this right. And the AstraZeneca vaccine has been signed off by our, our teams. 
Um, and if there's some problem they've got with it, then why are they trying to blame them for not supplying them when they haven't even signed it off? It, there's no logic to their position. It's a mean-spirited and wholly unworthy position that they've taken. You will recall, too, when the decision was taken, I don't know if it was in June or July, Alex Sharma, who was the then business secretary, took the decision to drop, to withdraw Britain from the EU procurement policy for the vaccine. There was a huge row at the time. The Labour Party very critical, accusing the Tory government of Little Englander policy. It's all about Brexit and versus Remain. But actually, that decision has been uh, uh, paid dividends because we are, I think, the third most advanced country in the world after the UAE and Israel in the delivery of the vaccine. And notice those are small, those are small entities, countries. <clears throat> and there's the point. The reason we withdrew was because the bureaucratic process that required huge amount of common purpose between the whole of the EU has proven itself to be slow and very, very leaden-footed. UK left the EU because we want to be quick we want to be able to make decisions that are based around what's good for the UK and our friends and allies, not what is run by somebody else. And so to this degree, this demonstrates what Brexit was about. It's not a mean-spirited thing. It was all about the UK wanting to get stuff done quickly, wanting to be able to make decisions about its regulations, to set them for what's best for the UK, not what may be best for another part of Europe. Uh, and that is a good proof as to why we left. It wasn't about being against Europe. It was about saying we want to be able to be faster, quicker and more centered around what's good for us. But the one thing that I add to that, though, Andrew, is an important thing. We have not forgotten the third world. The first thing the, the British government did was to say we will do our level best to help the third world to get these vaccines. We want to be able to help others. That very contrasts very badly with the European Union's attitude. If I could ask you just finally, Sriyan, if the European <clears> Union <throat> does carry out its threat to restrict uh, the supply of the Pfizer vaccine made in Brussels to third countries, in other words, Great Britain, despite the fact we've signed this huge contract with Pfizer, what should be the response of the British government? Well, the first thing is we should encourage uh, Pfizer to go to the courts about this straight away for a, a, an immediate judgment, because I think that they're acting beyond their powers. <clears throat> and the second thing is to respond by saying we're not going to respond. What we're going to do is carry on. We're going to do our best and you do your worst and you see who the rest of the world thinks is decent, honorable, and we will still get our people vaccinated faster than you will and more effectively. So you do your worst, but we're going to do our best for the British people. Fighting talk from Syrian Duncan Smith, the Conservative MP. Thanks for joining us. Companies which dump millions of tonnes of sewage into Britain's rivers, lakes and seas are facing calls for a tax on their profits to pay for the clean-up. Lib Dem leader Ed Davey made the call before Parliament voted on the Environment Bill. The tax would be 16% on pre-tax profits. I'm joined by Daisy Cooper, Deputy Leader of the Lib Dems. Uh, Daisy Cooper, part of the problem with this, these companies dumping sewage in the sea is even if they're fined, the fine is less than it would cost them to put in a proper infrastructure to dispose of the waste in a more uh, environmentally friendly way. Well, I mean, longer term, Liberal Democrats would like to see these companies reformed and turned into public interest companies so they had much uh, stronger duties to protect the environment. But we have an immediate crisis here, which is that uh, these water companies can pump raw sewage into our rivers, into our chalk streams and onto our beaches. And therefore, we need immediate action. And that's why we're calling for this particular sewage tax, which would raise around £340 million per year. Uh, per year 
to, to tackle this. As far as we're concerned, these water companies need to uh, pay their fair share. It's their mess. They need to help clean it up. And the, what would you, the £340 million it would generate, Daisy, would that go to investing in some form of uh, proper st- infrastructure for uh, waste or would you do something else with the money? We would like to see it used directly for actually cleaning up our rivers, whether that's fixing sewage leaks or whether it's actually literally cleaning up the rivers where there has been some form of, of sewage pollution. I think there does need to be um, uh, work to infrastructure as well and this could potentially fund some of that. Uh, but longer term, we need to see water companies investing more of their, their own money into those longer term, um, uh, longer term infrastructure projects. But this particular tax would be about cleaning up our rivers and, as you say, doing this, these, targeted, um, these, these targeted interventions to fix the, the parts of the infrastructure where we have the worst problems. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Thames Water, um, which made £434 million in pre-tax profits last year, um, pumped into one river alone for almost 1,800 hours raw sewage, for 1,800 hours. It's a staggering a statistic, isn't it? It is utterly, utterly staggering. Um, and yeah, I think the, the huge scale of public outcry shows just how seriously the public take this issue and how seriously um, badly wrong the Conservative government have got it. Um, you know, the Environment Bill was almost completely and utterly silent uh, on this particular issue. And I think it was shocking that the Conservatives opposed um, a proposal to actually try and uh, ban the raw sewage, you know, to, to ban a raw sewage mm. being pumped into rivers. What we're suggesting now is an immediate tax that could tackle the, the problem that we have, you know, right across our rivers, chalk streams and beaches. Do we know how many years this has been going on, this a rather unpleasant practice? I'm, I'm sure somebody does, but I wouldn't know how long it's going on. No. What, I we, what, we, what I do know is that we need to get a grip on it pretty soon. Yeah. And what do you think also about the fact water companies are making such big profits? Well, I mean, the fact is they are making these enormous profits um, and yet they're allowing all this raw sewage to go into areas where people want to swim and, and enjoy. And I think that that's why uh, a tax on these profits is that exactly the, the right thing to do to make sure that they pay their fair share. Just finally, um, the Liberal Democrats are supporting this. It's your policy. Well, uh, I, we don't know what the Conservatives will say. What would the Labour Party say? Have they indicated whether they'll support you in the division lobbies? Well, we don't, we don't know about that in particular. What we know that today the government is proposing uh, a very mediocre measure where it's talking about a gradual reduction uh, to the amount of sewage that goes into rivers. Uh, but the government hasn't attached any targets to that whatsoever. So it's very likely that Liberal Democrats will vote against the Tories measures in Parliament today, this new measure uh, that we're proposing, this new sewage tax, uh, we'll be pursuing that and we'll be trying to get as much support as possible. All right, that's Daisy Cooper. She's the Deputy Leader of the Liberal Democrats. Thanks for joining us. So the Conservative Party has made the first gains as Council England begins to declare results. And of course, there is the landslide victory in Hartlepool in the Hartlepool by-election. The Prime Minister has described the results as encouraging, understatement of the year in my view, adding this is because the government has been focusing on our priorities, the people's priorities, and bouncing back from the pandemic as much as we can. I'm joined now by Joe Twyman, who's co-founder and director of Delta Poll. Joe, we've talked a lot about this. Um, the Boris uh, bounce is huge. Uh, and who would have thought we'd have seen an inflatable dummy of Boris put up outside the count by the Tories. 
Yes, it's uh, it's certainly a good result for the uh, for the Conservatives, and really a reflection of the kind of patterns that we've been seeing in the polling over the last few months. Uh, we've seen, for instance, that uh, that Conservative support correlates very closely with people's perceptions of how well the government is dealing with the pandemic. We've seen that uh, the Conservatives are pretty much mopping up all of the support among Leave voters, and we've seen that increasingly the Conservatives are doing well among working class voters. Now, you combine all of those things and you get what is essentially a good time and a good place for a by-election to take place from the Conservatives' point of view in Hartlepool, given the situation with uh, the previous Brexit party support, no longer uh, no longer being able to vote for that party and so being able to go elsewhere, and also demographics favouring the Conservatives on top of uh, COVID casting a shadow over everything. And so right time, right place, and the Conservatives were able to deliver. Are we, are we witnessing something else here, Joe? Are we now really seeing a fundamental realignment of British politics? Because um, the Tories have won Harlow. Now, they've often had, they've got a very popular Tory MP in Harlow, but they've won the council there. They've won Dudley, which I started thinking about my history as the cradle of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, these are councils which you wouldn't necessarily expect them to win, but they are forging ahead from the gains they made in December 2019 in the general election, which in itself was their best result for 1987. Is it fundamentally realigned? And if if that is the case, what do Labour do? Uh, Well, it certainly could be the case, but really the unusual situation we still find ourselves in means it's impossible to tell for sure or to the degree to which it is the case. If you go back to October, for instance, when the government was doing much worse when it came to dealing with the pandemic and Labour were ahead in a number of the polls. If the elections had taken place then, the situation could have, I imagine, have been very different. I don't think we'll know exactly how long lasting this this search for the Conservatives is until we move out of the era of COVID fears around short-term health concerns and move on to COVID fears about economic recovery and bouncing back and all that sort of thing. And I think that's where Labour really can start to make inroads potentially because it strikes me that at the moment setting the groundwork for that thinking long term and starting to place to attempt to place doubts in the uh, in the minds of the electorate and then further down the line will attempt in presumably in light of the inevitable public inquiries they'll attempt to paint the Conservatives in a particular light. They'll talk about fairness, they'll talk about equality, and whether everyone is truly benefiting from the economic growth that we expect and the kind of uh, kind of stimulus that that will, uh, that will bring. And then if, in turn, the government's own competence is brought into, uh, brought into question in the aftermath of the post-mortem of the pandemic, then that may benefit, uh, benefit Labour. But there's no doubt that at the moment... Labour are really confined to, well, essentially Wales, London, and then university metropolitan towns and cities. And the, uh, the Conservatives are doing a very good job of mopping up everywhere else. Firstly, just finally, Joe, um, is there a problem for Labour with their leader? Because um, you can talk to any Labour MP you like and they'll say, oh, well, poor Keir Starmer, he's still dealing with the legacy of Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, But this is a very, very bad result for Labour. The third Labour leader in succession who's come from a particular part of North London, which someone like me would describe as very metropolitan, and they're doing very badly in non-metropolitan areas, if there is a problem with the Labour leader, where do they go next? Because they went hard left with Corbyn and it didn't work. They've gone centrist with Starmer and it's not working. 
Uh, that is, in a sense, the problem that they uh, the problem that they have. If they don't go for Stammer, who else is the uh, is the replacement? There really is no obvious uh, person who can point to and say that person would have done better. And of course, some people say, "Oh well, Jeremy Corbyn won in Hartlepool." Jeremy Corbyn did not win in Hartlepool uh, with the Brexit Party not running during a pandemic. So the comparisons for that are, uh, are not valid. Uh, and and so Labour is uh, Labour definitely is in need of, uh, of new thinking at the moment. But at the same time, it may prove to be the case that, uh, uh, that Keir Starmer is the best that, they can, uh, best that they can go for and best that they can hope for longer term. Uh, he, his own personal ratings remain actually relatively quite good. It's just that Boris Johnson's are better. Uh, but his are certainly significantly better than Jeremy Corbyn's were at any stage. And so, uh, uh, and so I would say it's cause concern for the Labour Party and something to keep an eye on, but not necessarily uh, a need for, uh, for wholesale change. The last thing I want to do is throw the baby out with the, uh, with the bathwater. Very interesting. That's Joe Twyman, who's co-founder and director of Delta Poll. That's all we've got time for today. I'll be back with more festive highlights and the show will return in full on January the 4th. I'm Andrew Pearce. Have a good evening. Happy New Year. Don't drink too much. Or if you do, don't have a bad hangover. And good night.